From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The voice of a changing world, Chris Smith, on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. G'day, g'day. Welcome to the program and coming to you live from Sydney, Australia for the next two hours. I look forward to your company. Um, All the world's biggest stories, of course, we will cover them right here. And we'll also look at what's making headlines in Australia as well. But one of the global headlines we'll be focusing on in this edition is Donald Trump's victory in the Iowa caucuses, a crucial victory at the outset of the Republican primary, which, of course, flies in the face of the bombardment of legal indictments that have been thrown at Trump. It's only worked in his favour. Um, I'll discuss with this with Curtin University Professor of Political History and International Security, Professor Joe Siracusa. We'll also talk about China's latest attack on Taiwan's trading power. They are up to no good. Hamas's next target, apparently the cities of Europe, and the shipment of helicopters that won't reach Kiev as planned. All of that with Joe Siracusa. From down under today, Senator Holly Hughes will take a look at why two Labor government staffers ended up barracking for Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley in Iowa this week. How strange. The two left-leaning staffers would go from Australia to Iowa and be seen with Nikki Haley badges barracking for Nikki Haley in that primary. Can you believe that? Uh, We'll talk about the Australian Foreign Minister's trip to Israel, but why Penny Wong refuses to visit the sites of atrocity from October 7, and it tells us all we need to know about where she stands on that conflict. And we'll dissect the Federal Labor Government's announcement today on easing cost of living pressures, which I've got to say is nothing short of a fizzer and a Band-Aid response to what the polls have been saying, that the government is on the nose with Australian voters because they have done nothing to ease cost of living. All of that with Holly Hughes. To the workforce, and there's a showdown shaping in 2024 between staff and bosses over working from home. Now, the bribes and the threats of 2023 had minimal success getting workers back into the office and about one-third of the workforce is still refusing to step outside their home. We'll speak with recruitment executive Graham Wynne about where this is heading, and we'll also tell you about the retailer who, well, has drawn a line in the sand on the age of prospective employees, and he says that 37 years of age is just too old, and I have a feeling he's headed towards the courts and someone who wanted a job with his organisation has decided to take him for ageism. Uh, all of that, including Hollywood director Jodie Foster slamming the laziness of Gen Z workers. Plus, we'll have plenty to uh, plenty of time to take your calls. Let's hear from you, and uh, maybe you've got something you'd like to share with us, whether it's related to some of the topics I've just articulated or something that you would like to 
uh, have a say on. Maybe it's something that you'd like to set the agenda on today. By all means, go right ahead. You can dial in from the US or Canada on this talkback number, one eight 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 two zero one six four two five. You can do so from the UK where it's just gone 4 a.m., Zero double three double zero two four one zero two six, and from Australia or New Zealand, one eight hundred six seven zero three one zero. You're with Chris Smith, broadcasting live on the Global News Talk Network (TNT). The facts, no spin or agenda. Not enough with the lies. We need the facts. This is today's News Talk Radio (TNT). Okay, it is time to address the elephant in the room yet again which is the alarming rate of excess deaths across the world and the possible link to COVID-19 genetic vaccines. Now, if you search the topic on Google, all the elevated stories involve mainstream health officials condemning anyone, anyone, no matter what their qualifications, if they've made a link between the two. And it's currently a great taboo. Right now, the fact-checking gods are cancelling those who attempt to show correlation and, even worse, causation. And yet, as we know, no country is prepared to establish a proper inquiry into why excess deaths have spiked the way they have. Well, we have a major development in the past couple of days on this issue, which is well worth sidestepping the fact-checking gods and putting on the table because that's what democracies used to do, you see. They used to have open, free, frank discussions about the causes of serious health events. That's the way the world used to work. Uh, We didn't censor doctors. We didn't censor professors, no matter how outrageous their theories may have seemed. In fact, if we had followed the way censorship works today in decades gone by, We would never have discovered, for instance, that ulcers came from a bug, from bacteria, because the first doctors who hypothesized that theory, well, they got pilloried right across the world, but they were never censored. They were never struck off or prevented from expressing their free speech. And then they were proved to be 100% accurate. They were right. The tut-tutters were wrong. Anyway, the majority of the public now suggests and suspects that a link does indeed exist between excess deaths and the genetic-based COVID vaccines. The public are convinced. A new Rasmussen report survey released over the weekend reveals that over half, 53% of Americans, believe that COVID vaccines may be to blame for many unexplained deaths. 53%. This is the first time... This report has asked the same question and has had a majority on that side of the argument. Now, the other data shows that the majority, 54% of Americans, believe there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about the safety of COVID vaccines. Now, according to the Daily Skeptic in the UK, the survey of 1,133 American adults conducted in the second week of 2024, this is not old data, shows that despite all the pro-vaccine messaging and all the censorship of COVID vaccine injury discussion on social media, most of the American public just ain't buying it, which goes a long way to explaining why booster rates in Western countries right now have only just got over 10%. 
They've been languishing between seven and eight for about three months. And that's a long way away from when we were getting up into the 90% range when the first jabs were rolled out. And I don't think this widespread suspicion is due to any rogue doctors spruiking doubts about the vaccines publicly, because it's only on media outlets like TNT where you hear this kind of commentary, this kind of argument, because we refuse to be bullied, we refuse to be censored. The same can't be said for mainstream media. I think this is because of a number of things. Firstly, the public realised by the end of the pandemic that too many health officials and too many politicians beat up the dangers associated with COVID-19 for fit, young, healthy people. Secondly, those who took the jabs ended up getting COVID-19 anyway, despite the promises they would not. And thirdly, so many of us know of someone who died suddenly from heart failure without any real explanation. In fact, this Rasmussen data includes the finding that one in four, 24% of Americans believe they know someone who died from the jab, one in four. Now, there's been one highly respected cardiologist who's had grave doubts about the impact mRNA vaccines are having on the heart, and he was on this page way back when the jabs were first rolled out, Dr. Haseem Malhotra, who I've interviewed on this program myself last year, created a storm on the BBC a year ago, you may remember, when he dared to make the link between these genetic jabs and the occurrences of heart failure that he was seeing. He said they were contributing to excess deaths. But what is almost certainly, and I, if you allow me to say this, Lequesa, what I, my own research has found, uh, and this is something that is probably a likely contributory factor, is that the COVID mRNA vaccines do carry a cardiovascular risk. And um, I've actually called for the suspension of this pending an inquiry because there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment about what's causing the excess deaths. Some of it will be ambulance delays. My own father, it was reported on BBC News in um, late 2021, uh, I was the first to actually highlight the ambulance delays because my own father suffered a cardiac arrest at home and the ambulance took 30 minutes. And when his post-mortem came out, he had very severe coronary artery disease, which is unexplainable. I then published in a peer-reviewed journal. They accepted my findings that the likely cause of his death was two doses of the Pfizer mRNA vaccine he had six months earlier. Boom. Uh, that was only the start of that controversy. He then explained in that same interview a year ago how much evidence he had then which led him to make the link. And there are lots of data now. Um, the, the highest quality data is what we call randomized controlled trial evidence. So there was a reanalysis in the journal Vaccine published recently where they found that the original trials of Pfizer and Moderna with mRNA vaccines showed, and I just want to put this in absolute terms because we don't want to scare people unnecessarily, mm. but the absolute risk of serious adverse events was at least one in 800. Okay. Uh, and, and a lot of those are cardiovascular. And then it, you were more likely in those trials to suffer a serious adverse event than to be hospitalized All with right. COVID early on. And I think the vaccine has certainly helped people who are high risk. But now we should be reassured that Omicron and what's circulating is really no worse than the flu. And this is really time to pause the vaccine rollout and to really okay. investigate this properly. But even that evidence, the 1 in 800 evidence that Malhotra was able to determine wasn't enough to convince the pro-genetic vaccine fraternity, especially the government compliant BBC. 
the British broadcaster back then, a year ago, apologised for that interview and in a statement said it should have been better prepared for a live exchange with Dr Malhotra given his history of promoting vaccine hesitancy. But to this day, no First World Government wants to get to the bottom of excess deaths and support what they're saying. No official judicial inquiry has been called. And of course, an official judicial inquiry with a wide term of reference is what's required, not the terms of reference that we've seen in the UK or Australia. Uh, Malhotra has told one of my TNT colleagues this very day, the two Tory ministers are convinced there is a link, but he didn't name those two ministers. Oh, and one last thing from this latest Rasmussen survey, 22% of Democrats think it's not at all likely that COVID vaccines are causing unexplained deaths. Not at all likely. 22%, which sounds about right because Dems often enjoy putting their heads in the sand. So why not put their heads in the sand over this issue as well? But what they can't dispute, what they cannot dispute as of the past two days is that suspicions about mRNA COVID vaccines are no longer part of some fringe opinion from conspiracy theorists. They are not because the majority have woken up. This is TNT. TNT Radio's Kate Shimarani. Don't stop taking prescription medication. Always go and see your indoctrinated GP, always. But with psychiatric drugs, you have to actually wean off them. They're very addictive and you have to wean off them. Now, I find all this really concerning. But what I cannot get my head around is the worst drug of all. They just let it on the market all the time. Sugar, 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 sugar. And then that's not even to bring in like MSG, monosodium glutamate. And and I, if I, I can say, you know, you go into one of these garages and you see all the people going for food. There's nothing to eat in there. I very rarely can find anything to eat in any of these places. And if you go into the supermarket, there's only the first two aisles that have got real food. The rest, it's not food. And I see what people buy. I've covertly actually filmed people's trolleys, not them, don't get all excited, but I have filmed trolleys uh, to have a look what people are buying. And it's shocking because what you eat determines what your brain's going to be like and your teenagers' brains do not stop developing till they're about 25 years of age. Kate Shimarani on TNT Radio. Affordable housing, we can build that. Sustainable housing, we can build that. At MIT Modular, we understand the importance of housing for all and the importance of design, cost, and functionality. Our goal is to meet the needs of our growing population by converting shipping containers to livable units. If you're like-minded and in a position to invest in something meaningful and life-changing, we want to hear from you. We are a team of professional architects, engineers, and financial and tax experts dedicated to offering unique solutions that provide a brighter future. Our Opportunity Zone Fund offers investors both real estate and operating business diversification, five-year tax deferral on capital gains, annual tax benefits, and ultimately tax-free appreciation potential. There are Opportunity Zones all over America. If you're interested in learning more about our services, need affordable housing, or want to participate in creating a new vision for tomorrow, give us a call in the U.S. on 385-985-5702 or read more at MITModular.com. MIT Modular. We can build that. The conversation continues. I don't believe it, and I think that's a terrible position that I am in, that I don't trust my government. This is today's News Talk Radio. TNT.
Now, you can also participate in our program by simply going to the chat box, which you can find on tntradio.live. And on the chat box, you can have your say about issues that arise and others will have their say and you can have a chat about what others are saying as well. That's the way it works. Uh, one here from Robert saying, G'day, Smithy, and to all your viewers and listeners, Mike also says, how about a Royal Commission needed into the vaccine disaster? They wouldn't dare, Mike. They wouldn't dare because they'd be too scared about what they'd find. And Robert says, not under Albanese's terms of reference. Well, tensions continue to escalate in the Middle East, as you know. In breaking news, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps of Iran said it had used ballistic missiles against an ISIS base in Syria and a stronghold of the Israeli spy service Mossad in Iraq on Monday in retaliation for the recent terrorist bombings in Iran. The suspected Mossad base was near the US consulate in Erbil, leading to mistaken reports that the Americans had been targeted. Also on Monday, according to US Central Command, Yemen's Uthi UT militants struck an American container ship with a ballistic missile. Uh, the ship reported no injuries or significant damage and is continuing its journey, but it's yet another warning sign of the potential for military escalation in that part of the world. My next guest will share his insights on this and more. Professor Joseph Siracusa is Dean of Global Futures in the Faculty of Humanities at Curtin University. He's a leading expert in American politics, foreign policy and international security. We love having him on. He joins us live from Perth in Western Australia. Joseph Siracusa, Happy New Year to you and welcome back to TNT. Thank you very much, Chris, and the same to you. We've come back into the new year with things starting to escalate in the Middle East beyond the boundaries of Gaza. Do you see military escalation in the Middle East unavoidable, especially involving Iran? Well, uh, Chris, uh, I, I think it's not only unavoidable, I think it's already happened. We have uh, these uh, attacks and we have kinds of attacks, and uh, we're getting the response, and America's got major assets. Yes, I think uh, there's very little uh, we can do to stop it. What about Iran? Well, look, let me put it to you this way. Um, the Houthis, who are this rebel band, have taken over, I guess, half of Yemen. Uh, the, the Iranians are clearly pulling their strings. But what we haven't figured out yet, Chris, is who's pulling Iran's strings? <laughs> they're not that big an outfit, you know. They uh, they can do certain things, but uh, you know, are the Russians pulling their strings and doing other things? I mean, uh, I, I think there's uh, there's more going on here. And of course, as we learn about every war or conflict or thing like this, you know, down the road, we learn how to learn that it was far more complicated than we ever imagined it to be. But I'll tell you this: um, I, I think what's happening in the Middle East is terribly predictable. Israel was against the wall. I mean, you know, they're fighting for their lives. Uh, Hamas targeted uh, uh, civilians, and, and Israel targeted uh, Hamas. So, you know, what's going to happen there? Well, a great deal. So you have a lot of damage in the middle. And um, I think the American response is predictable. You know, we, I, I just heard before I came on the show that uh, that uh, former President Trump has just swept the Iowa primaries. And I was thinking to myself, if Trump were in the White House during the uh, uh, 
Hamas attack on Israel, would there be any different results? Probably not. I think uh, I think uh, President uh, Biden, whatever else his faults are, I think he's four square behind the Israelis. I think uh, uh, President Trump is too. I think there would have been a response to the uh, Houthis lobbying missiles and drones at American warships and shipping in the Red Sea. I think. Uh, uh, President Trump might have done the same thing as President Biden. So in a sense, we got kind of continuity. Very interesting, Chris. In the uh, in the Iowa primaries, they asked everybody what your main concern is, and foreign policy was, you know, number five. People are worried about the economy and whether they trust government. But I must say, not trusting government's been going on since my generation, since the Vietnam War, when <laughs> government thought they could start lying to people. That is telling, not telling them everything else. You know wasn't exactly a lie. They just forgot to tell us why we were there and when we were leaving, why we were leaving and all the rest of it. So I think, um, you know, the, 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 it may be a new year, Chris, but a lot of the problems we have are continuations of old things and it makes no difference who sits in the Oval Office. I think a lot of the responses have been predictable. Although, although we've now got this standoff between Benjamin Netanyahu and Joe Biden over the future after the war is ceased. Do we have a two-state solution? Will Israel live harmoniously on the same boundary with uh, with a, a Palestine in whatever form that may be? Will they be part of rebuilding Gaza? They don't want a bar of it. The Americans do, and they're supported by the UN. How would Trump deal with that standoff? You raise a very interesting question. I mean... Uh well, first of all, the, the idea of a two-state solution has been dead in the water, I think, for 20 years. You know, it's nice mm. to talk about it. It keeps people quiet and shuts them up and gives each new State Department a chance to bring peace to the Middle East. Uh, you know, uh, I was a stockbroker in the 70s in Washington. On Friday afternoon, we used to make up a rumor to keep up business. We used to say that peace is breaking out in the Middle East. <laughs> we spread that around, but it's was, it was never true. Peace is not about to break out in the Middle East. And this, uh, this idea that, uh, that Hamas can live cheek by jowl with the Israelis, you know, it, it's not possible. They're on the same border. It'd be like America having its worst enemy on the Rio Grande or the uh, Niagara yeah. Falls border. And same thing for Australia. So, you know, they're, they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And we, we haven't had many solutions. Now, Netanyahu, has made it very clear. He's going to do to uh, what he has to do to destroy Hamas. And uh, uh, Biden has uh, stuck his neck out, that the Secretary of State Blinken has stuck his neck out and said that the uh, United States will not tolerate uh, an Israeli occupation of Gaza. Look, it's the last thing on their mind. The only trouble is the only people left to take care of Gaza are the uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority, and everybody thinks they're corrupt as well. So, you know, mm. there's no one um, minding the store and the Arab nations, those who are jumping up and down against the United States and Israel. They ain't got any solutions. You know, they're not talking about what happens next, uh, no matter um, who's complaining about what's going on. No one seems to have a, a solution to the problem. And, you know, maybe, Chris, maybe the problem is the problem. I mean, how 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 do you put... These two peoples who all descend from Abraham in the same place without killing each other. I mean, this is a tough. This is a tough uh, ask. And yeah. of course, uh, you know, what, look at just look at Gaza on your television screen. I mean, the place has been destroyed. Who's going to pick up the bill? The yeah. international community can't even feed people in Afghanistan yesterday. 
or Naaman, they've been talking about the Great Famine there and all the rest of it. I just think we've been kind of overwhelmed with problems, and we tended to take our eye off of Israel because we got pretty, uh, well, let's say, we got, we got pretty satisfied that it was going to take care of itself. And so on October 7th, we found out the uh, Israelis were asleep at the switch. The intelligence mob had fallen apart. I don't know where they were. And I like to blame the intelligence people, whether it's Pearl Harbor or October 7th or 9-11. You know, the intelligence people uh, do have a way of connecting the dots, and they get very complacent about what they're doing and what they think they know. And when this all happens, you find out that we could have averted this and we could have averted that and we overlooked this and that. So, you know... Every time there's a major disaster overseas or in America, I say, fire the intelligence chiefs and let's get some new people in there because it just didn't work out. Yeah, that's very, very true. We don't look to we don't look enough at what information we fail to receive prior to these events. You're quite right. Just one quick one. Uh, Israel's intelligence agency, Mossad, has warned that Hamas is now aiming to carry out terrorist attacks on European cities. Um, the Israeli Prime Minister issued this warning over the weekend. How seriously should we take it? Well, I, 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 I'm not bragging here, but I predicted the same thing three weeks ago because these European cities are soft targets. You know, you've got uh, thousands and thousands, if not millions of migrants who've moved there over the years. And, you know, sometimes people have split loyalties. You never know, you know who's going to come forward. And let's just think of... Uh, you and I are old enough to remember in the last 20 years that a lot of these terrorists, it's an airport in Spain or it's a Christmas uh, market in Germany, they come out of nowhere. Yeah. And people who are prepared to die come out of nowhere. And, uh, you know, uh, frankly, we're, we're, it's, it's very hard to protect us in the West because we, we don't live like uh, a garrison state. You know, we don't have policemen on every corner. We don't want it that way. Thank God, in the United States, we can't even protect people from killing other citizens, you know, mm. in schools and movie theaters and things like that. So, you know, we've got a problem. And the problem is that the terrorists are looking at soft targets. And I think it would be very natural for Hamas, Hezbollah, and, um, and the Iranians to sit down and unleash the mobs. Now, the only thing that the, the uh, terrorists seem to disagree with is each other, whether it is Sunni or Shia. Sooner or later, they're going to kill each other, and they usually do, as a matter of fact. But I think we in the West, we're, we're kind of open targets. So, uh, you know, the price of living in today's world, I think, uh, Chris, is eternal vigilance. We just yeah. got to be awake, and we just got to be a little smarter than the other guy. Uh, very, very true. It's as simple as that. That's all you can do. I want to take a quick break for news, if I can, uh, Joe, and we'll come back. I want to talk about China, Taiwan, and a few other bits and pieces, including Trump's victory in Iowa. Uh, Professor Joseph Siracusa, our special guest on the program right now. Let's take a break for that news right here at TNT. What the hell is this? Breaking news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a look at your TNT headlines. Tensions are threatening to explode in the Middle East as the Houthis turn their missiles on American-owned cargo ships in the Red Sea. Two former British politicians have reportedly acknowledged a link between the mRNA COVID vaccines and excess deaths in the UK. And China's calling for a large-scale international peace conference to discuss the establishment of a Palestinian state free of Israeli occupation. The common housefly, caught in the clutches of the spider's web. Every move it makes 
just makes matters worse. Then, dinner time. Feast on the captivating stories, videos, and helpful information on our website. Oh, dinner's ready. Oh man, escape is futile. Just one more video. Get stuck in our web. TNT Radio. Live. Let's continue our conversation with Professor Joseph Siracusa. Joe, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres has tried to intervene in this Middle Eastern conflict again as we passed 100 days of fighting. He's once again called for a ceasefire. Have a listen. We need an immediate humanitarian ceasefire to ensure sufficient aid gets to where it's needed, to facilitate the release of the hostages to tamp down the flames of wider war because the longer the conflict in Gaza continues, the greater the risk of escalation and miscalculation. Joe, we managed to construct two different ceasefires. Why can't we create a third? Well, because the, uh, the, the people on the ground, the theater commanders on the ground probably don't want to give up any tactical advantages. I mean, these wars are, you know, house to house and door to door and there are tactical advantages. You know, we talk about humanitarian ceasefires and these pauses. Uh, Chris, the, um, the sad news that is in wartime, there ain't a lot of this going on. <laughs> there are no pauses. I mean, war is a terrible thing. You know, people are taking people's lives and killing people they don't even know. And then when you say, when someone says, you know, these people violated humanitarian laws, these people violated wartime, uh, wartime uh, uh, pauses. I mean, uh, now this is all kind of like modern stuff since the late 1940s. Uh, war is organized violence practiced by one people upon another, and there ain't a lot of rules. The rule is to kill as many people as possible so you can end the conflict as soon as possible. So when you start talking about... Uh, you know, bringing in hot dog sellers or whatever the hell they want to do. And they want to keep pausing the war to feed people who are caught in the middle of this. And if you, if you brought in peacekeepers, if you brought in a pause right now, I mean, you'd need it again in three days. I mean, you know, these people are shut off from water and food and all the rest of it. It looks probably as terrible as it is. So uh, the terrorist is, um, uh, is fighting the good fight. But uh, in terms of international law, who's violating what? I think that in war, when, uh, when things start going, uh, I think uh, people do what they have to do. I want to tell you just a, a quick second here. I saw a study many, many years ago at, uh, at the Defense College. Uh, some uh, Australian soldier wrote a book about uh, Australia's kill ratio. In the Japanese war, the Australians killed 20 Japanese. For every Japanese who killed an Australian at the highest kill rate in World War II. And I used to ask Japanese scholars at the University of Queensland when I was there, why, why didn't you guys surrender to somebody? He said, surrender to who? He said, the Australians were killers. My point is simply this. In wartime, people don't make pauses. They try to finish this off as soon as possible. It gets messy, as a matter of fact. So this idea that you know, we're, we're, we're trying to find a pause to feed or, or clothe somebody in the middle of a crisis, that's the dance of the bumblebee, and it, it just never works out because uh, when people are engaged in combat, and I mean mortal combat, Israelis are fighting for their lives, and I'm assuming Hamas is fighting for their lives. They don't have a lot of time for this. And I, I, I quickly picked up, and probably you did too, listening to Israeli military people at the onset of this thing, that the, uh, the hostages would probably be sacrificed. You, you can't sacrifice a war effort for 100 hostages. It doesn't work that way. 
On the other hand, there's enormous pressure on Bibi Net, uh, and Netanyahu to do something about those hostages. And uh, so, you know, we got this kind of human drama. We got the military drama and we got Guterres. So I think right now has the laziest job in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Easier from a long way away. I want to talk about the Pacific now. China's top diplomat, Foreign Minister Wang Yi, has warned that any steps towards Taiwan's independence would be harshly punished. If anyone on the island of Taiwan thinks of going for independence, he said, they will be trying to split apart China's territory and will certainly be harshly punished by both history and the law. Are we closer to war after Saturday's election? Well, I mean, this idea of uh, independence for Taiwan, this is something the Americans, that is Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon, uh, agreed with uh, with Zhou Enlai and, and, and Mao in 1972 that uh, uh, Taiwan can go its own way, can have its own military, its own medals, its own marching band, its own government, its own literature, as long as it doesn't declare independence. And what they mean, that's shorthand for they can't have an independent foreign policy. Now, the Americans understand this, and Blinken and, and, and uh, President Biden you know, make occasional reference to this, that uh, they would not support uh, independence in Taiwan. That is, they wouldn't provide the, uh, the trigger. On the other hand, Chris, I think the chances of a miscalculation or a war starting there over something related to this is very, very high. Yes, the uh, Taiwanese did themselves proud during the vote, uh, and of course, the uh, Chinese mainland wouldn't be happy about the guy who got in because he's always making anti-Chinese noises. But if you look just beneath the American responses, beneath the Australian responses, uh, we're not really encouraging anyone to do anything except no. stay the course. And so, you know, if the Chinese are patient, that is, the Taiwanese are patient, they could probably wear these guys out. I think the Taiwanese government is going to be there after... Uh, President Xi Jinping and the Communist Party are history, Chris. I think if they can just learn how to play this game a little bit better, I think they're going to see the back of those guys. Wow. That is some prediction. Uh, meanwhile, you would have heard about this. Nauru has switched diplomatic recognition from Taiwan to China almost overnight, uh, certainly less than 48 hours since the election. Nauru has severed all trading ties with Taiwan and will resume full diplomatic ties with Beijing. Taipei has announced publicly that Nauru has been paid off by the Communist Party of China. Uh, it doesn't mean too much because Nauru is just a speck on the map, but it does give you an indication of what China is trying to do to the economics of Taiwan behind the scenes. Well, yeah, let's, um, let's put this in a little bit of context. This is the second time Nauru has switched sides. About 15 years ago, they notified the Taiwanese they were checking out the relationship and recognizing the homeland. So, and, and Nauru, there's a little bit of a tendency to play both sides against the middle. It's small, but it's interesting. And, of course, uh, what happens in the Southwest Pacific is deadly serious to, to Australian uh, Australian politics and national security, so we have to watch it carefully. I think there are only about 12 nations in the world that recognize uh, Taiwan over China. Yeah, yeah. Yep. They, they have a pretty good relationship with, with Taiwan, but uh, I don't think it's going to change the balance of power anywhere or anything like that. But it does suggest that in the Southwest Pacific, Australia and America, despite all of its, all the things they've done in that neck of the woods to make things life easier, I think the... Uh, uh, I think our friends in the South Pacific are just a little better poker players than we give them credit for. <laughs> you might be right on that score. 
How about Ukraine? Um, Australia is moving forward with plans to scrap dozens of military helicopters, which Ukraine and its supporters believe should be donated to Kiev. That's obviously been part of plans at an earlier juncture. The choppers were decommissioned 14 months ahead of schedule, with 38 remaining in service at the time, following an incident which claimed the lives of four service members. Kiev still wants them and has complained that a shortage of Western donated arms and equipment has undermined its war effort. Will they get their helicopters? No, I don't think so. Look, I've been watching Labour and Liberal for 50 years in this country, and I, Labour Party's not too subtle about signalling things. Uh, uh, Chris, the war in Ukraine is over. It's dead. The Russians want it. The best we can get now is a, a decent ceasefire and preserve what we can of Ukraine, something probably Zelensky could have had two years ago if he'd have played his cards a little better instead of going all the way with, um, with Joe Biden on this. I think uh, Australian policymakers can see that any future shipments to Ukraine is a, a waste of money. It's not going to get there anyway. And I, I, was at a, I held a conference last week, and I had a lovely woman from from Prague, who said that, uh, you know, remember the, the, that gunfire, that uh, that shooter in, in Prague a couple of weeks ago that killed all those yep. people? She said he was uh, uh, carrying very expensive weapons that were only available in Ukraine. And she was convinced, a lot of the people in that neck of the woods are convinced, that a lot of the arms that we send to Ukraine wind up on the black market and the place is as crooked as a fish hook. So I wouldn't send Ukraine anything. We have for two years. They stayed the course. They have fought... Uh, they have fought nobly and with heroism, and I think they have uh, acquitted themselves well. But uh, the idea of sending anything any, any, any more now is just a, it's just a dead issue. It's like saddling up a horse, but Melbourne Cup is dead. You yeah, know, it's over. Yeah. And that war is over, and we ought to get out of it with as much damn dignity as we can. Yeah, NATO needs to lose some face here and be prepared to lose some face because there is no winning that war against Russia. No, sir, it's hard to beat a country that has 11 time zones, okay? Yeah. It's just very, very hard because <laughs> they can always call up troops. And, and, of course, you know, 14 million Ukrainians, 8 million went overseas to live another life. 6 million went to nearby countries. The rest are headed until this was over. So, you know, we've lost a third of Ukraine, but weren't even available to fight the war. And those weren't just women and children. These were everybody who could yeah. get out of the joint. And so, uh, you know, I, I think when the devil is very large and you have an 800-pound gorilla as a neighbor, I think you're going to have to, uh, not exactly cave in, but you're going to have to accommodate this person a little bit of this, uh, this object. And we were never going to beat Ukraine without NATO or American assistance. And the idea of encouraging these people to fight the good fight without us by their sides, I regard as, frankly, in my lifetime, cowardly. I saw the same thing happen in a number of other places. My God, Chris, you can't ask people to die for something you're not going to die for. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't make sense. No, you're right. I want to go back to uh, Iowa. Uh, Donald Trump is one step closer to returning to the White House after voters braved some sub-zero temperatures to hand him victory in the Iowa caucuses. How important is this political contest? We knew he was destined to win. Um, does it does it indicate, though, I, I think, that despite the wave of indictments that have been thrown at him, they are only working in his favour, not just in the polls, but at the ballot box? Well, look, I'm, I'm going to agree and disagree with you, Chris. We didn't know whether he was going to win because we, don't know if, we didn't know if the polls were any good, you know, in 2016. 
True. All the polls were, were deficient. You know, they told yeah. us the opposite things. Yeah. And, 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 and Trump's done a wonderful job in Iowa. The polls at Des Moines Register, that last poll they do there, is spot on the money. They talked about 48%, 49%. He's got 51 52%. So he's right on the money. And I'll tell you what, those people went out and voted in record numbers. And they were, went out and they voted in minus uh, uh, temperature. And, of course, they're good, hardy uh, Iowans. They... They go to milk the cows even when it's cold, Chris. doesn't make any difference. But the point is, is that Trump's the front runner now. He's, very, he, he's on the cusp of becoming the presumptive nominee for the Republican Party. And you know what I say about that? It's like looking at a tank. Get out of his way. He's going to yeah. sweep all these states that he can't sweep, you know, and damn the felony accounts and the various show trials and things like that. He's, uh, he's turned his back on that. But Iowa has shown. And then I saw a piece in the New York Times just before I went on your show. Someone was trying to denigrate the intelligence of the Iowans. You know, they always get it wrong. Well, actually, they don't always get it wrong. These are just hardworking people who look at Donald Trump and said, well, that could be me. He's getting screwed around. I'm going to vote yeah. for him because, not because of what he looks like or because he's uh, got some questionable bad habits. They vote for him because he's the only one who wants to stand up to Washington. He's the only one who can go to Washington and point its finger at all these deadbeats who take everybody's money and tell us the wrong things. You know, he, he's, he's the great equalizer. And while they can't go to Washington themselves, they can't raise the millions of dollars necessary to win any seat in Congress, they can send Donald J. Trump, who's prepared to risk his fame and fortune, if there's any fortune left after uh, the New York courts get with him. And, you know, he, he's, he's their man. And because he's the front runner, he's going to get all that Republican money. And because these people who have been bad-mouthing him need that money, that Republican money, they're going to have to say they're going to endorse him or they don't get the Republican Party's money. So yeah. what he does, he's got these guys uh, by the throat. He's got everybody else enthralled to him. And, of course, uh, people can't explain this phenomenon. I can, actually. I think he's, uh, uh, I don't think Donald Trump's going to change the nature of government. And he's not going to become a dictator. We all know what Mussolini is. And, 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 and Hitler had going for them, black shirts and brown shirts, et cetera. Donald Trump is just a very unconventional guy who's got a yen to get back in the White House. And he's got millions and millions of people who want to see him return to the White House to finish what he started. Well, what did he start? We're not real sure because COVID uh, sort of short-circuited everything there for a while. But uh, I'll tell you what, when the islands came out and Gave him on like 52, 53 percent of the vote. Most of the delegates. I'm thinking to myself, well, for one, for one time now, Chris, since 2016, the polls are working. Okay. Yeah. If they say he's going to win and he wins, because when you said that the polls said he was going to win, we have no idea if that's true or not. That's true. <laughs> that's true. Know, who, the, who pays the, for there's the been a, there's been a confirmation of what we were looking at in the polls. The other thing I, I'm interested in, one last question. I wonder sure. whether the way they've come to get him, whether it's indictments, um, whether it's uh, other various forms of taking him out, I just wonder whether that has been the tipping point, Joe, where his command at this stage, 10 months out from an election, is so much more commanding than in the two previous elections he ran in that that he can thank the Democrats for it because they have made democracy part of the reason to vote for him. All of a sudden, those who are wavering in the middle say, well, hang on a second, 
They've just dumped on him. They've used and uh, uh, weaponized the judiciary to go after him. That is not my America. That has tipped me in his favor. Do you think there's there's uh, credence, legs in that argument? Absolutely. He didn't get his recharge to his campaign until he got uh, arrested about 18 months ago, two years ago. Yeah. And he's been telling America uh, in his own way that the system is rigged against him. Well, you know, Blind Freddy could see the system is rigged. You know, every two-bit uh, district attorney in America went after him, two phony impeachment proceedings, one phony uh, Mueller report suggesting that he did all kinds of crazy things in some hotel in Russia. All these lies are told about a man who's not particularly likable. But I'll tell you what, this guy is, uh, he's as durable as Molly Brown on the sinking Titanic. I mean, yes. uh, Donald Trump is unsinkable. That's very true. That's a good way to end our chat. Great to catch up at the beginning okay, of 2024. I think this could be a huge year, Joe. I'm sure it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. There you go. Professor Joseph Syracuse, uh, Dean of Global Futures and the Faculty of Humanities at Curtin University. You may not agree with everything he says. And I've got chat box comments here that agree with him and disagree with him, but one thing I like about Joe, he says it the way he sees it, and he's not afraid to forecast what may be ahead of us. Um, and when he talks about Taiwan and the government there standing long after Xi Jinping is gone and maybe to the Communist Party, that is one hell of a view, a forecast. And um, that's what we like about Joe Syracuse, not afraid to stand by his convictions. As for Donald Trump, it is the first time that the actual polls, that is the ballot box, has reflected what the polls have been telling us. And I am convinced that the way they came after Donald Trump was the tipping point that will now um, provide the win to take his sales all the way to the White House. We will take a break and quite happy to take your calls. You know our numbers. If you don't, I'll tell you what they are. From the United States or Canada, one 6425 Love to hear from you if you're listening from the UK, 033-0024-1026, or from Australia and New Zealand, one 800 This is Chris Smith on TNT. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. I once worked with the man who was a naval aviator, a carrier pilot. And as Norm worked his way up the ranks, he eventually became an XO, executive officer, on an overnight watch. There was an incident on the flight deck, and Norm handled that with a plum. And still he lost his job the next morning. Because when the captain awoke, he didn't enjoy hearing that there had been a problem, even though Norm had handled it professionally and perfectly with no problem whatsoever. You see, Norm was writing checks on his boss's account, and that's a no-no. Well, guess what else is a no-no? Being second in command of our military, the Secretary of Defense, and neither letting your boss, the President, nor even your deputy know that you're going into hospital for cancer surgery and that you're going to be in ICU for four days. This is unconscionable. Lloyd Austin, as a retired four-star general, knows better. In fact, he needs to be recalled to active duty, court-martialed, and stripped of his pension. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio.
choose to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more, so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. This is The Chris Smith Show on today's News Talk TNT Radio. Now, on Thursday of this week, I'll be catching up with former ADF Intelligence Officer Shane Healy, and there's so much to talk about in terms of strategy and tactics occurring in the Middle East, primarily Gaza. But also beyond all of that, um, we've got two US Navy SEALs missing off the coast of Somalia, and I know as a vet Shane Healy will have something to say about that as well. But just an update for you on that story. The US Defence Department has been making daily comments about these missing Navy SEALs. They disappeared last Thursday, as you may know, while attempting to board an unflagged vessel, which was carrying medium-range ballistic missile parts from Iran to the region. Now, although it's believed the weapons were bound for Yemen, the vessel was known to have illegally transferred arms to Somalia. It's understood one of the seals was catapulted into the sea by a strong wave and the second dived into the water attempting to rescue him, but neither has been seen since. Uh, US defence officials said seals were trained to deal with the conditions and waters in the Gulf of Aden. They were warm, meaning that exhaustion rather than hypothermia is the main risk. Ships, drones and helicopters have been deployed in the search for the missing men. On Friday, US Central Command said a search and rescue operation was underway to find the missing sailors, but it didn't reveal that they were SEALs. An official speaking anonymously told ABC News that they were on the USS Lewis B. Puller, a Navy expeditionary sea-based vessel. Other members of the US team who approached the vessel on a special operations combat craft, others successfully boarded the vessel, capturing its crew of about a dozen and searching the vessel before confiscating the weapons and sinking the craft. Now, over the weekend, John Kirby, the administration's national security spokesman, said the operation was not connected to the strikes against the Houthis. There was some speculation they were, but they're not. They were participating in an operation separate to all of that to disrupt the flow of weapons to Yemen, he confirmed. US officials have accused Tehran of exacerbating the crisis by funneling military hardware into the region. The sailors were part of a Naval Special Warfare Command Unit attached to the Bayran-based 5th Fleet, which has conducted regular searches of boats in the Gulf of Aden looking for contraband, including weapons and drugs. They were carrying out an operation known as Visit Board Search and Seizure. Uh, but how brave are they both? And how particularly brave was the second SEAL to jump into what was clearly 
rough sea conditions to try and save his mate. Like, put yourself in the position of those men. Tough, representing their country. Now, I want to take you to the UK. We were talking about polls before and whether the polls can be replicated at the ballot box. Well, we've seen this in Iowa. There is now synchronicity for a change in what we see in regular weekly polls and now regularly in Iowa. But in the UK, could this be an indication of what may happen later this year when the Brits go to the polls? Well, for the Tories, they would be hoping not. But the public backs a toughening of the government's Rwanda plan for illegal migrants. As a matter of fact, the issue of illegal migrants has become the number one issue, and there's daylight to second, apart from, of course, the cost of living crisis at the moment. Um, but illegal migrants is the number one issue in Britain at the moment, and for various reasons, including um, the Supreme Court's objection You've got Rishi Sunak unable to do what the public is expecting, which is to get rid of the flow of illegal migrants to Britain. Well, a poll suggests on the eve of a crucial Commons vote on Rishi Sunak's flagship immigration policy that they want his Rwanda plan to go through and they want it tougher. More than half of voters in the Prime Minister's constituency believe people who cross the channel in small boats should be immediately removed with no right of appeal. Now, across England and Wales, 42% of voting age adults back such a policy, which the former Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick is trying to persuade Mr Sunak to adopt. Another 15% of people think cross-channel illegal migrants should be removed but with the right of appeal, while 27% of those who, who expressed a preference opted for the current system of allowing migrants to stay in the country while their claims are processed. But the vast majority of Brits will not have a bar of that. Uh, in 516 of the 575 constituencies in England and Wales, removal without appeal was the most popular option. In other words, You've come in illegally. You do not deserve an appeal once a decision is made about your future. No appeal. In 392 of these constituencies, removal without appeal attracted more support than the other two alternatives combined. An outright majority of voters back removal without appeal in 111 constituencies which gives you an indication of the pressure now mounting on Rishi Sunak to come up with something that is more expectational of what the Brits see the Prime Minister doing. And at this stage, he hasn't come up to the mark, which is why the Tories are being marked down in various polls that are being conducted. Now, Iran has claimed responsibility for missile strikes that exploded near the US consulate in Iraq's semi-autonomous Kurdish region late Monday night. Iran's Revolutionary Guard said they targeted spy headquarters and the gathering of anti-Iranian terrorist groups near Erbil, the capital and most populated city in Kurdistan. We spoke about this with Joseph Syracuse just a while earlier, but I wanted to give you a little bit more detail about that attack. Four civilians were killed and six more were wounded in the attack that saw 
10 missiles raining down in the area near the US consulate, the Security Council of the Kurdish Regional Government said. Uh, the dead included prominent local businessman Peshraw Dizai and his family members, former Deputy Speaker of Iraqi Kurdistan's Parliament, Hemin Harari, as well. So Iran is very much part of this conflict and it is broadening across the Middle East as we speak. We will take a break and back after the news. Don't go anywhere. This is Chris Smith on TNT.